This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we learn what childhood vaccine rates can tell us about whether people will get the COVID-19 shot. Plus, we hear about a new profession that can help people figure out how they want to go, death doulas. It was amazing to find there were so many differences in, in what the death doulas say that they do and, and what they offer. And we hear about recent efforts to revitalize downtown Loveland. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. As COVID-19 vaccines become more widely available, will enough people choose to get them to keep your community safe? Ray Alumbichel of Kaiser Health News has been looking into Colorado childhood vaccine rates for clues. She joins us now to talk about what the data can and cannot tell us about COVID-19 vaccine acceptance. Ray, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can childhood immunization data predict which communities are hesitant or unlikely to get COVID-19 vaccines? I talked to a lot of researchers and experts in this field of study, and the resounding answer was, like, maybe, but probably not. The gist here is that vaccine hesitancy is not monolithic. You know, I talked to one researcher who said, I've talked to families where they chose to vaccinate one kid with these shots and one with completely different set. So the decisions are, in every case, very complex. And as one person put it, the Venn diagram showing one circle of people who refuse certain vaccines for their kids and the circle of people who may refuse the COVID vaccine for themselves, it'll probably have some overlap, but that might not be very much. It sounds like there's a wide spectrum of reasons people might not choose to get this vaccine or another vaccine. What is the difference between people who are vaccine hesitant versus others who are decidedly anti-vaccine in general? It's an important distinction and one that researchers are always trying to clarify. So there's a very, very small sliver of people. When I say people, I'm mostly referring to parents because these childhood immunizations are where there's so much detailed information. So there's a tiny sliver of parents that are what we might call anti-vax, which means usually refers to people who just don't trust vaccines. And there's a few different reasons why that might be. But the gist is, those are the people that are probably most likely to be in that Venn diagram overlap. So they don't like vaccines in general. They don't trust them for, for, for whatever reason it is. And it makes sense that if that's your thinking, you would probably reject vaccines for your children and you would probably also reject vaccines for yourself in a COVID pandemic. But that's a very, very small sliver. And the group that is much larger and that people are really watching much more closely are the ones who are on the fence. That's vaccine hesitant, people with questions, people who want to be able to have conversations. All the vaccines that are out there are still relatively new, very new if you look at the scheme of how vaccines usually get developed. And that large group of people is shifting. If you look at polls from Pew or from the Kaiser Family Foundation, more and more people are getting enthusiastic about the vaccine. But there there are some chunks that in various racial and ethnic categories and other categories to remain adamantly like, I definitely will not get the COVID vaccine. But most people or a much larger segment of people rather are open to changing their minds. 
How do schools fit into this? Uh, do childhood vaccine rates vary at schools across the state, or are there any patterns in which type of communities or schools have lower vaccination rates? The interesting thing about childhood immunization and the patterns of refusal, like places where you see a lot of parents refusing these vaccines for their kids, is that it really cuts across a lot of different communities. The researchers I spoke to said this, you know, there's there's debates that circulate every now and then about whether this is, you know, whether anti-vax and vaccine hesitancy is primarily a liberal issue. Is it the crunchy, crunchy granola group or is it a conservative issue? Is it a libertarian thing? And the through line is it's kind of a little bit of everything. It's It cuts across all these different groups. And yet what you see with right now unfolding with national polls looking at what do people think about the COVID-19 vaccine is that it's actually much more political. There seems to be, and this is changing month to month, but there has been a, a consistent divide between survey respondents who identify as Democrats and those who identify as Republicans. And some of the people that I spoke with who live and breathe vaccines and vaccine hesitancy, they're really worried that the politicization we've seen in 2020 uh, with the COVID vaccine could potentially be really harmful in that it, it might bump vaccine choice out of the opinion realm and into the political identity realm. Right. And we have seen mask mandates and other COVID-19 public health measures become politicized over the last year. Have vaccines already become politicized? It's a little bit uncertain. It is changing a lot. And one of the things I heard a lot is really depends how things go in the next few months. But there is a common concern that just like with masks, just like with lockdowns, schools and restaurants, that the COVID vaccine could end up becoming a political issue and more so than it already is. And that when it makes that jump or if it makes that jump rather that could make people's opinions about vaccines, maybe maybe not just the COVID vaccine, but other vaccines too, that could make their, their thinking around it less movable. Because once something becomes part of your political identity, it crystallizes. Where does skepticism about the COVID-19 vaccine fit into this larger anti-vaccine movement that has sort of gained a lot of traction in the last decade? One person who's been following this a lot for many years now is Peter Hotez, and he is a researcher in Houston, um, has written a book about the anti-vax movement and also a lot of done a lot of research around these issues. And, and he says it's really been growing a lot in recent years and that just before the pandemic, it had sort of taken on new energy online and social media, but also in specific organizations, including some that popped up in Texas and Oklahoma and Colorado. What he says is this is now a full on, he calls it an anti-science empire. The, I think, important thing to take away from all of that growth in, in the movement that he describes is that this was all happening before the pandemic. And then add into that a pandemic in which we saw the Trump administration give a lot of messaging that made a lot of people worry the vaccine would get fast-tracked in a way that might not be okay, that might not be safe. That combo has set sort of a worrying a worrying stage. Ray Ellen Bichel is the Colorado correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Ray, thanks for joining us. Thanks. 
A global pandemic certainly has a way of bringing our own mortality into focus. How do we want things to go at the end of our lives? There's an emerging profession that may help you and your family answer that question. For KUNC, Madeline Beck has more. It was 2018. Chris Bruton was 47 and his dad was dying. He actually had stage four kidney cancer. He was basically given uh, about two to four months uh, to live. When Bruton was a kid, his dad traveled a lot, so he didn't get to know him that well. But after Bruton's mom died, his dad moved in with him in Colorado. A year later, that diagnosis came. Someone Bruton knew suggested a death doula. And of course, I'd never heard of it. It sounded a little bit, little bit hocus pocusy to me. And then he met Cindy Kaufman and introduced her to his dad. And as I walked out, I heard sobbing from my father that I had never heard before. And it just this, this well of, of um, stress and fear, uh, anxiety, sadness, it all just came out. Kaufman came by one or two times a week and drove down for the end. Even though he'd never heard of a death doula before, Bruton is now a convert. I had no idea um, how much work there was to do to help someone who's going through the dying process until I saw what Cindy did. And, and yeah, changed our lives, changed, changed our lives and uh, changed my dad's life at, at the very end of it. Death doulas are also called death midwives or end-of-life doulas, but whatever you call them, their numbers have blossomed in the last decade. There's a few in every state, but Colorado is a hot spot in the Mountain West. Cindy Kaufman leads the Colorado End-of-Life Collaborative. End-of-life doulas fill what we believe is a gap. That gap is the space between hospices, which provide necessary medical care, and what she does, help someone with the actual process of dying. She adds that since it started in the 70s and 80s, the hospice industry has become more of a business these days, with certain hours and staff caring for multiple clients. In fact, the majority of hospices are now for-profit institutions. We don't carry those kind of caseloads. We work for ourselves. We don't fall under insurance. We're, we're private pay. She says death doulas can bring ritual back into dying and make it easier to say goodbye. They can help plan legacy projects, say late-night prayers, figure out what kind of burial or cremation you want. For some, they just sit with people right up to the end. And death doulas are incredibly diverse, not only in what they offer, but with their backgrounds. There's no licensing requirement or mandatory training. Kaufman says some people who use their own culture to inform how they practice as death doulas want it to stay that way. They want to be honored for the fact that they were trained within their own family and community to do what they do. Still, several international training centers have cropped up in recent years, some in places like Australia and the UK, and one in New Jersey, the International End-of-Life Doula Association. Henry Fursco Weiss is a death doula who created that organization six years ago. Anybody could call themselves a doula without knowing anything, uh, without having any training. He says it's good to take other cultures into consideration, but the profession needs standardization if they want to be reimbursed by Medicare or Medicaid. He says this change could also improve quality of care. Plus, he says it needs to happen for this fledgling profession to evolve and gain trust. 
Deb Rawlings teaches palliative care at Flinders University in Australia. She's one of the few people who've done any research on this occupation. It was amazing to find there were so many differences in, in what the death doulas say that they do and, and what they offer. She found that many death doulas are former hospice workers or nurses. Some volunteer, others charge, some help with a spiritual journey, others help with more physical tasks. But even though they're so different, they all told her... We've got time. So I've got time to come in and sit with you. Um, I might sit with the person who's dying and let their family go and have a break. Um, I, I might help and do the washing. So they've got time to be with those who are running out of it. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find this and other stories at KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Cities that have a traditional, vibrant downtown usually enjoy increased business and the buzz of being a desirable place to live. And over the past few decades, places in northern Colorado like Fort Collins, Longmont, and Greeley have all spent time, energy, and money revitalizing their downtowns. Loveland, on the other hand, has lagged behind, but some recent projects are helping the city catch up with neighboring communities. Here with more on that is Tommy Wood, who wrote about this for Biz West. Tommy, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. This revitalization movement, I don't know if we call it a movement, um, but it it started back in the 80s for places like Fort Collins. Is there a reason Loveland didn't jump in on this until recently? Yeah, it's you know really comes down to you know, these projects that, that come along with the revitalization of a downtown, new restaurants and retail space, you know, new, new multifamily housing, new office space, developers are going to build those where they think they can get the best rent growth and get the best return on their investment. And for the longest time, that just wasn't there for Loveland uh, the same way that it was in Fort Collins and Longmont. And that's really the, the big reason why you saw, you know, a place like Fort Collins started revitalizing its old town in the late 80s, you know, Longmont not far behind. Up until really recently, Loveland just didn't present the same return on investment for uh, a developer that other front range cities did. Is there a flagship project that development officials there are especially excited about? One that's in the works that people are really, really excited about is called Cleveland Station. And it's the redevelopment of basically a full city block at uh, Fifth and Cleveland, right downtown. It was the former uh, Reporter Herald building for a long time. It was a Banner Health Clinic, but it has sat vacant since 2015. And it's really kind of been an eyesore and a blight on downtown. And now that's being redeveloped into uh, retail and restaurants with an eye towards having those spaces be filled by local small businesses. There's also, they've also got some tax increment financing, rebates from the city for some public improvements to, to nearby sidewalks, uh, crosswalks. So that's one that people are really excited about. That That's really intended to be kind of an anchor for the north end of, of downtown Loveland. One that has already completed that's that's kind of a flagship for the southern part of downtown is, is the Foundry, which was a, uh, a massive retail residential um, and kind of public plaza type of project that was finished a few years ago. That was one where it was it was developed by um, by Brinkman. They built a movie theater. They built hundreds of, of multifamily units, and that was really what started getting you know a lot of a lot of residents into downtown. The the retail spaces have been filling up, and the and the public plaza that they built as part of the foundry 
was really intended as part of a concerted effort to give downtown Loveland more of an actual downtown feel. Is this something that the Downtown Development Authority wanted to address? Yeah, they've been making a concerted effort to uh, kind of create a, create a traditional downtown feel. Uh, like I said, the foundry and the public plaza there were a big part of that. Uh, the, the DDA throughout lot, throughout most of 2019 was putting on events there during the summer and, and on weekends, kind of similar to the uh, Friday Fest activities we've seen in Greeley to try to get that downtown revitalized as well. Those efforts to uh, create a downtown feel kind of took a hit during the pandemic when you couldn't really have, you know, those same concerts, those same big, large group events in downtown Loveland anymore. But, you know, speaking to people in the downtown development authority, they are pretty bullish on 2021 as hopefully, hopefully a time when they'll be able to get back to normal and, uh, you know, continue to build that downtown feel. You know, of course, having a, a vibrant downtown isn't just about restaurants and breweries and things like that. What about office space and residential property? Yeah, especially on the office side, that's something that downtown Loveland really lacks at the moment. And you know, talking to people in city planning, talking to the downtown development authority, that, that's something that they really want because with, with the bars and, and the restaurants there, the nightlife down there, at least, you know, pre-COVID was, was pretty robust. But those those bars and restaurants, retail shops uh, really were not seeing the type of daytime foot traffic that you would like to see in a downtown. And that, again, downtowns like Longmont and Fort Collins do see. Now, in terms of residential, uh, that's really interesting. There's going to be a, a lot more multifamily projects coming online in Loveland in the future, most likely. Um, yeah, that's that's something that we've been seeing. That that we've been seeing really up and down the front range. Um, there, there's a huge trend towards building big multifamily apartment complexes uh, because those are such a, a, a solid investment for developers. I, I do think we're going to see a little bit of tension because there are really no options for uh, residential property to buy in downtown Loveland. There's one project in the works right now that would redevelop the former Larimer County building into 11 condos for sale. And those would be the only uh, residential properties for sale downtown. So I would expect those to sell very fast. But, you know, talking to people in the downtown development authority that, you know, that that is a tension that's going to play out over the next over the next few years is, you know, how, how do you attract, you know, more like upper middle class, uh, you know, kind of white collar residents who want to buy property, uh, you know, to a downtown where where they probably won't be able to buy a house, an apartment, a condo. What is next in these efforts that are underway in Loveland? I mean, are they kind of finished for now? Are there more plans in the works? This redevelopment stuff never finishes. Um, it is it is constantly evolving. Um, and in Loveland right now, there are a few a few projects in the works. In addition to the Cleveland Station and and the county building redevelopment that I already mentioned, there's another whole city block that was just bought by a group of investors led by the founders of Loveland Aleworks. They just purchased an entire block at uh, Garfield Avenue and West 4th Street. That went through really at the beginning of 2021. So it's they haven't announced what their plans for that property are yet. But I have to assume there's there's something in the works. Uh, there are also two other buildings up for sale downtown, the former Elks Lodge building and the former Oddfellows Lodge building. So those are also likely to be redeveloped into uh probably retail or office space. Tommy Wood is a reporter for Biz West. You will find a link to his reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. Hey, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. 
not every museum is about the past. Sometimes it's about celebrating the present and the future. For example, at a new pop-up museum in Denver, the artists are paying tribute to a long-neglected group of people. KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick has more. In the heart of the city's Rhino Arts District, Charlie Billingsley is showing me around the Museum for Black Girls. So we usually start here at our grandma's kitchen. As Beyonce plays in the background, we check out a brightly wallpapered space with a salon chair sitting front and center. Next to it is a stove with pressing combs and Marcel irons on the burners. They used to heat them on the stove to straighten our hair. And the Marcells, I used to use them to curl our hair. Billingsley says it's an almost exact replica of what her grandmother's kitchen looked like. A lot of our past experiences are with us getting our hair done in either our grandmother, our mother, or auntie's kitchen, you know, getting ready for church on Sundays or picture days. The familiar scene showcases the beauty of the black female experience, like in the exhibit Roots, featuring a tree topped with balloons representing all the different skin tones or the Vibe Affirmation Room, a sort of large-scale vision board filled with images of celebrated beautiful black women, from singer Diana Ross to actress Pam Greer. Visitors can write their own affirmations on the wall next to the photos. I like this one, life is waiting on you. Or also, I am beautiful for a woman, not just beautiful for a black girl. The idea for the museum began in 2019, when Billingsley, a photographer, wanted to host an exhibition of her images of black girls and women. In part, she wanted to inspire her own daughter, Jada, but she also realized it needed to go further. Black girls and women needed a safe space to truly see themselves. Following the Black Lives Matter movement and protests last summer, the museum has expanded its reach. 2020 definitely changed our dynamics. This particular opening has been very different. There have been so many different faces and colors and ethnicities. People coming willing to learn and celebrating with us, even people that are not of color, celebrating with us and loving the space. Billingsley partnered on the project with her aunt, Lavanya Washington, who says too often things focused on black women center on trauma. Washington says it's also important to show the joy and beauty. When you think about it and you look at like the history and the struggles, you know, we know that's there. But we, you know, in this space, we want to remember the past. We want to acknowledge the present. And we want to inspire people for what they can be and what they can do in the future. One of Washington's favorite works is an oil painting of a little girl in a field. While the subject might seem fairly commonplace, it's actually quite rare. She bought it 30 years ago, and she still remembers talking with the painter about it. He said that he had never seen a picture of a black girl just being in a field of flowers and being, you know, sympathetic and caring, and she's got a basket of kittens. And he said he was in the South, and he saw a young lady walking in a field, and he was thinking how beautiful she was. He said, I've never seen this depicted. Taking back the beauty in the black experience is a major part of the museum. It's why things like the Blue Magic Room, dedicated to the black hair care product, connect so intimately with its audience. Anything about our hair, if you're a black woman, is viewed as a negative thing. That includes simply the style in which it's worn. Last year, a new law called the Crown Act was passed in Colorado, banning discrimination based on hairstyles. 
And it's just crazy that a law had to be passed to say that that's okay. You know, how you wear your hair is okay. Charlie Billingsley says there's a powerful impact that comes from simply seeing yourself reflected in the larger world. I love to see the little girls come here. They're like, that looks like me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, that looks like you. And that can be you. And you can be okay just how you are. And you're beautiful just the way you are. And look at these beautiful women being just who they are, doing amazing things. Not taking a no for an answer, not changing for anyone, standing in their own taking their power back, creating their own seats at the tables, creating their own tables. And these little girls are like, yeah, you know, if they're not not allowing us at the tables, now we're making our own tables, we're making our own spaces. Billingsley hopes to eventually take the museum on a cross-country tour so that other black girls can revel in a place that celebrates the skin they're in. Stacey Nick, KUNC, Denver. Like a trophy when Naomi's walking. She need an Oscar for that pretty dark skin. Pretty like Lupita when the camera's closing. Drip broke the levy when my killer's rolling. I think tonight she might break her brain. Melanin too dark to throw her shade. She minds her business and winds her waist. Go like 24K. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll hear how the pandemic is impacting the lives of people with special needs and how that's affecting this year's Special Olympics. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Ryan Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.